what you're asking. I draw the line across the board, watch the tiny white particulates fly off of the chalk and waft down to the metal tray below. The y-axis is good fortune and ill fortune. The x is time. I tell them this is how stories work. This is how stories are built. It's the movement across this axis, a character traveling through time, passing from good fortune to ill fortune and back again. This is what a story is. I put the chalk down, clap the dust from my hands. I had a student teacher when I was their age who would end up unknowingly smearing her black blouse with chalk dust every day. So I always try to be careful. I clap my hands again. My students seem unconvinced. Every story is this shape, I tell them. It's the details you use to fill in the shape that make the difference. Every blues song is only three chords, I explain. The artistry comes in the specifics. A big-legged woman is going to carry me to my grave. If I don't find her in Mississippi, she'll be in East Monroe, I know. The bellhop's tears keep flowing, and the desk clerk's all in black. I get so lonely, I get so lonely, I get so lonely I could die. It's those details, I say again, to hammer the point home. The details. The bowl of Smurfberry cereal on the kitchen countertop of my father's apartment. The top floor of a Rockland house converted into a one-bedroom. My sister Sarah and I in sleeping bags in the front room. The old wicker furniture from my grandparents. No tub. Only a standing shower. A wooden set of stairs snaking around the outside of the house. Climbing up, our clothes and our tiny backpacks, one hand on the railing. Hurricane Gloria knocking them down, envisioning Dad trapped up there forever, unable to imagine another way down. The dead bat by the pine tree, the neighborhood boys we didn't know, not our neighborhood, but braver than us, willing to poke at it, to press the sharp stick against its furry belly. But that's cereal. Papa Smurf on the front of the box, waving, the secret Smurfberry bush in the background, Smurfette and nameless, faceless worker Smurfs loading wheelbarrows, procuring these berries for me. The crunch, the milk turning red, the taste still with me 33 and a third years later. 33 RPM, the tiny record player in my bedroom at home, the small discs the size of 45s but played at LP speeds that shined to signal a page turn. Learning to read, the pop and spit of vinyl, the scratch of needle, the way lifting the plastic arm caused the record to spin, the slight bounce as I dropped it on the spinning disc, watching the undulating black wave, the crackle of waiting. I hear the voices, memorize the cadences, trace the letters, follow the words, the pathway between symbol and sound. Scrooge McDuck and Jiminy Cricket, ghosts of Christmas past, present, future. Mishearing the word grave. He tumbles into his own gravy, I say. The bells of Christmas morning, redemption, the crackle of finality. The needle runs off into the groove. 
Nodding off behind the wheel, the serrated pavement grooves along the edge of the highway, machine gunning bap 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 as I drift over. The long stretches of highway through New York State. The odd names of towns I pass through for an instant. Just a doghouse on a field. Tiny scratches of snow left on the grass. Thinking about the girl I left behind, the hours of road ahead of me. A melody comes to me, a triumphant tune, full of lift and lilt, and I have to turn off the radio to remember it, to hold on to it. It feels good to sing it, to hum it, to let its reverberations rumble against the back of my throat. There are hours and miles and miles to go, nothing but my own voice for company. I get so lonely, I get so lonely, I get so lonely I could die. For sake of example, I lay out Cinderella before them, putting my chalk below the x-axis, I explained, orphan servant girl, neglected and abused by her stepmother and stepsisters. Then, the invitation to the ball, the fairy godmother, I draw the chalk line sloping up, up, the horse-drawn carriage, the dance with the prince, the moment of connection. I reach the maximum point, and then, midnight, pumpkin, my line plummets back down. To have been given something, given hope, to have it snatched away. I drag the chalk lower and lower. But! The hastily abandoned glass slipper. The prince's feverish search. Rising, rising, rising. Virtue and kindness rewarded. True love, rising, rising. My line slopes up again and does not stop. I draw the symbol for infinity and put the chalk down. Happily ever after. The carnival in the church parking lot. It's the end of summer, the colored lights that line the bones of the rides wait for the long labor twilight of September to give way to nightfall. I'm ten. I've come alone. Money for tickets from my mother. Perhaps she imagines I'll meet friends here. We'll laugh and giggle and ride the rides, push past each other, and pull at one another in a playful way. I don't know what I imagine. I hand a ticket to the carny, and he directs me to the passenger car. If he surprised him alone, he doesn't show it, although I notice the other cars filled with pairs, groups of threes, locked in their cages, their laughter timed with the rhythm of the swinging baskets. He locks the door behind me, and I rock back and forth, and then the slow ascent as he fills the other cars. I can hear his boots against the grated metal walkway as he makes his way to the lever, and we lift up. From each vantage point, I look out at the crowd, searching for her face. I know nothing of her but her face, except her name, of course, in which house is hers, and that her dad waters the lawn in a bathrobe, and that stealing sight of her in the halls of the Frankie Holt School or in the center of town on half days is like narcotic. Maybe that's why I'm here alone, the hope of seeing her, of her seeing me, the imagined invented crises of boys' minds, the dangers in the woods, the masked assailant, the girl trapped on the broken Ferris wheel. Scenarios where we can imagine being brave and heroic, where our bravado and heroism will be noticed by the right person, which will then allow them to notice the rest of us, the real, small, sacred parts of us they haven't noticed yet. I reach the top and the wheel stops. No sign of her. From this height, the mass below are all indistinguishable. The tops of girls' heads and the tops of boys' heads, and she might as well not even be at the carnival. She will never see me up here. I'm alone in the passenger car, swinging back and forth, just leftover motion. I hear the carny pull the lever again, pneumatic hissing, and we head down. 
I watch the platform slide underneath my car as I arc past. We pick up speed, shrieks and laughter from my fellow riders. I have no one to shriek with, to laugh with. My car is the quiet one. We spin around a few more times before stopping again at last. I rock back and forth, probably two-thirds of the way to the very top. The slow ascent again, the sound of metal doors being unlatched of sneakers against graded metal walkways. I am at the top again now, and this time instead of looking down, I look out. This town, my town, I can almost see it. It's a passing moment, elusive and shapeless, but I can see the tops of the trees, the streets we've built that cut through them. I can feel it as one place for the first time. An ocean of green we swim through, that we build homes in, the paving stones we have laid to create pathways between your house and mine. It's all about connection. I see that now. It's all about coming home. The wheel arcs down again and eventually it's my turn at the bottom. The carny waits for my car to stop rocking before unlatching the door. My sneakers on the graded metal walkway, down the steps, onto the parking lot. I exit out through the crowd. I decide to save the rest of my ticket money my mother gave me. Back on the ground, no one I know is here. I'm all alone again. It's still not dark enough for the colored lights of the carnival. The x-axis is not just a Rubicon to cross, I tell my students. It represents time. Time is what makes the story happen. I fear I lose them each time I invoke mathematics. This is a creative writing class, after all. But I feel it pertinent to explain. Time is not linear, I say. When you are two years old, a year is half your life. When you are eight, it is one-eighth. Time is cubed, then. It will move faster and faster as you age. This is why your childhood memories will stay so vivid, so much more powerful. They pass by you so slowly, your aperture so wide. All the light that reflected off those moments was captured behind your eyes, recorded there as if on stone tablets, golden plates. We carry them down mountains, out of forests, and hold them for the rest of our lives. Exploring out in the woods behind my father's house, certain I am miles away, lost in the deep, dark forest. In truth, he can probably see me from his back window. I am walking just to walk, exploring, imagining with each step upon the brush that mine are the first feet to stand on this ground. Magellan, DeSoto, the arrogance of ignorant discovery. Something green and plastic up ahead. It's obvious it doesn't belong here. I inch closer, pretending in this moment I am akin to Indiana Jones, about to uncover bygone treasure protected by ancient death traps. Reaching under the brush, I grab hold of the object and flip it over. Leaves and dirt launch off around me as it wobbles on its edge and flops onto its back. The plastic wading pool. Shaped like a turtle, white stickers for eyes, the empty floor ribbed like a shell. I spent all my summer days in this pool, naked, splashing hose water at my sister, coasting down the small slide of its neck. I spent a thousand years in this pool. Now time has taken it, cracked its base. Dumped here years ago, forgotten, abandoned. I am only eleven, but seeing this piece of childhood upside down, left in the deep, dark forest like Hansel and Gretel without breadcrumbs to find its way home, is too much. I take the torn cord off of an old vacuum I found out here last week and thread it through the hole in the shell, loop it around again. I pitch the cord into the crook of the tree and pull it through, lifting the pool into the air. 
I tie the cord to a stump and step back. It's a hundred feet in the air, or maybe only four, but definitely one hundred. This feels like veneration, like a defiant symbol, beating back against the coarsening tide of time. I leave it suspended like a pirate flag, a warning against the folly of burying treasure. I tell my students to write down every teacher they've ever had on a piece of paper, followed by a memory from every grade. Trying to conjure details out of the ether is difficult to do. It's like trying to grab individual water molecules out of a swimming pool. Better to just get a cup. First grade. The smell of the Modulok action figure I received for getting my front teeth pulled. A Masters of the Universe villain, his twisted features like a golem made of red licorice. The Novocaine numbs my mouth, but makes all the sense around me more vivid and nearly tactile. Second grade, camping by the lake, staying in the trailer alone because I'm too scared to watch Teen Wolf, projected onto a sheet in the middle of the campground with my family, reading instead a story where the hero is buried alive. I'm all by myself, in the woods, the night stalking just above the trees. Third grade, turning my back in the number four square, bubbling the red rubber ball in my palm so quietly that even I'm not sure if I'm doing it or not. The quick spin around, the sudden serve. I am invincible, immortal in the fraction of the second before the ball hits the pavement just inside the line. Fourth grade, sitting on the floor between the stacks of the school library, reading a book about Japanese movie monsters, the electricity of fear and excitement running up along my shoulder blades. Fifth grade, building a flyer out of toilet paper, tubes for a science project and launching it out the window. Whoever stays aloft the longest wins. My little plane soars out across the soccer fields, out beyond our sights, now just an uncertain dot floating beyond our most certain dreamings. I hear one of the girls behind me say, wow, and I imagine it love. Sixth grade, the hour I was home alone each day after school before my sisters or mother got home. I stress to them that these memories might not seem important enough to write down, these small private moments that only have significance to you. But if you don't remember them, if you don't treasure them, who will? Seventh grade, WBCN-FM, all day long, all summer long, lying beneath my window, surrender to the music. Eighth grade, the April vacation I spent on Fieldcrest Drive, almost like summer. Girls doing cartwheels on the grass, boombox blasting against the freshly resealed driveway. Ninth grade, the purple glow of night after a snowstorm, the sky seeming to hang so low, the silence warm like honey. Tenth grade, lost in the woods at night, I call my father from a payphone by an abandoned ranger station to tell him I'll be late. Been so hot that day we could never imagine the heat subsiding, but there's a chill in the air out here. There is no moon so I'm only able to see a few feet in front of me. I'm only steps away when the phone screams to life, the electromagnetic bell inside a shrieking banshee coming down the wire. My heart on fire, I pick up the receiver. Please deposit 15 cents, a broken ghost voice tells me. 11th grade, fever struck and alone in the Costello house, having walked out of school midday. I lie in the rug between Shannon and Caitlin's room, neither cognizant nor concerned with what my next plan will be or the consequences of my truancy. I fade away into fever dream, the vagrant thought that I may love places more than people, loitering about until I fall into blackness. Twelfth grade. Riding my bicycle to buy Superman's wedding to Lois Lane. 
A long, lazy day. I rolled the issue up and forced it into my back pocket, right onto the ice cream stand, where I licked the last drop of peppermint off my spoon, my legs crossed, outstretched on the grass. I am aware of my childhood as something living, breathing, an errant creature in need of shelter and warmth, the October sun still warm like summer. I asked my students to share one of their memories. I draw it on the graph, dramatically swooping my chalk line up, 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 and then swinging it down, crossing that x-axis, the marker of time over and again. Each moment of our life is this in miniature, a fractal. There is nothing, then something, an emotion, an experience, a brief glimpse of understanding or connection. The line slopes up. Then that moment is gone, lost to the miasma of moments, swirled into the din of time, falling down. The memory, our ability to return to that moment again and again, to hold on to it like a crystal that can reflect and refract the present light, that is our happily ever after, our rising line with infinity. The air between my son's feet and the ground, the seconds of flight as he jumps for joy. Alone in the hospital room with my parents' elderly cat, his leg lifeless and limp, dragging behind him on the metal examination table, his searching eyes, his small plaintive cry. My parents are out of state, so I am here. He falls over, the walking too difficult, my hands cradling his face, something I hope he can understand. The way the morning light crosses my wife's sleeping smile in the time before the world intrudes. My daughter, atop my shoulders as we walk along Bear Cove, a song of her own invention, her head bobbing emphatically along to this temporary and transient melody, lost to the air, if not for my listening. Each and all of these my tiny pieces of the world, seconds only I have known, tiny jewels of experience. They will cease to exist the day I die. All I want is to hold on to them forever. Breakfast again. My father's house this time. Ants have invaded. So we keep cereal in plastic containers with snap-on lids to keep them free of pests. Smurfberry crunches a distant memory now, lost to the public consciousness. Who remembers Smurfs anymore? They're Ninja Turtle now. Power Rangers. The only cereal left is Cheerios, trapped in that plastic container. My father lets me add sugar to the bowl. I had forgotten about the Smurf berries, but not the sweetness. He hands me the sugar and spoon. No, I say, let me put the milk in first. Add the sugar on top. I want to be able to see it. Scoop the sugar crystals up in my spoon. Know that they are there when I bring it to my mouth. You should put the milk in last, my father tells me. Let the sugar dissolve. You won't be able to see the sugar anymore, but the sweetness will sp spread throughout the milk, being every spoonful. My students stare up at the swoops and curves I've left on the chalkboard. How is this even a story? One of them asks. <laughs>